The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Book of Galatians, one of the early letters of Paul in the New Testament. Galatians is about salvation by justification through faith. Paul takes on strong arguments, especially in the beginning of this book, as he scorns those who think there is a way of salvation through the law alone and tells how it has always been by faith alone, through Christ alone, even in the day of Abraham. I pick up, I'm going to read verse 29 of chapter 3 just to pick up the thread there, but the first five verses of chapter 4 are what I'm concerned about, especially verses 4 and 5. Listen to God's Word. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And this is God's Word. Charles Wesley was the hymn writer for both of our hymns sung so far in this service this morning. They both had a theme of longing for and looking for the coming of Christ. And the second hymn that we sang, Hark the Herald Angels, has this possibly puzzling line in it, Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. I used to think about that when I was a boy. What did the writer mean, late? Did he mean God was late in doing something that should have been scheduled at an earlier time? Was Jesus late for his birth the way you might be late for work someday if there's heavy traffic or late for a dentist appointment just because you don't want to go? I think most of us assume Wesley meant the birth of Jesus seemed that it was a long time coming, and so it could be called late in time. You know, most people are shocked when they first find out that we do not know the exact date of Jesus' birth, not the year, not the month, not the day. The year and month assigned to Christmas are all uncertain. The Romans devised the calendar that we use today. There was an earlier type of calendar before that. And they used as the baseline of that calendar the supposedly the birth of Christ. That's why we say before Christ and A.D., Anno Domini, year of our Lord. Although you may know that the, the scientific and historical and academic 
communities have done away with A.D., if you didn't know that. They will commonly now talk about saying it is 2016 C.E., the common era. One more way to push Christ out of the picture. But the fact is that when they devised this calendar, they did not correctly estimate the day of Christ and later in later times had to realize and admit that they got it wrong. Jesus wasn't born in the year zero or the year one. Here's how we know that one clue that helps us is the death of Herod the Great. You can recall that, of course, Herod the Great was alive when Jesus was born, and he sent for Jesus to be killed, to be massacred with two-year-old infants and under in Bethlehem. Now, we know for a fact that Herod the Great, matter of good historical record, died in what we would call 4 B.C., Now, Jesus was alive together with Herod, and so he had to be alive previous to 4 B.C. And in fact, based on that, our best estimate of scholars, Bible scholars, would say probably the year 6 B.C. would have been the right baseline beginning. But then December 25th isn't right either. December 25th was the date of the Roman festival of Saturnalia which was pretty much what many people celebrate as Christmas today, kind of a drunken party time festival before the winter appeared. It had no religious connotation, no Christian connotation at all. But someone, somewhere along the way, said, well, we have to celebrate the birth of Christ. And so let's do it on December 25th. All of Rome is having a party anyway. I think that was the logic. And so... Interestingly, while we sing songs about a cold winter night in Bethlehem, again, the scholars would say the more likely time period would have been the spring months of 6 B.C. That really discombobulates you, doesn't it? All your imagery of December 25th goes out the window. But despite this calendar uncertainty, we today look at Galatians 4 here, and I want to show you some of the things that are said about the timeliness, the providential timing of Christ's coming, especially in Galatians 4, 4 to 5. We read here, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. That is a packed two verses with a lot of things in it. I'll strive to try to simplify and present it to you today. But first point, let me remind you that in the fullness of God's timing of history and events, Christ's appearing actually was very providentially timed within social or world historic events. It's very interesting how there was a time when you would have said, well, if he'd come earlier, it would have been hard for certain things to happen that did happen. For example, Rome was near the height of its power at about the time of Jesus' birth. You may know Rome hung on for a couple more centuries, but eventually declined, and by four to 500, Rome's power was crumbling everywhere. But at the time of Jesus' birth, there was, in effect, across most of Europe, all the way up into Britain, all around the Mediterranean basin to North Africa and so on, something called the Pax Romana the Roman peace. Rome had been a great warrior and had had to 
massacre and fight its way to gain the power that it had all over Europe and in those areas that I just mentioned a few minutes ago, all the way up into northern Britain, up into Scotland, Rome penetrated. But they did it by outfighting people. And, of course, you can read the wars of Julius Caesar and other things like that to remind you of Rome's readiness. They had great troops, well-trained, able to beat most people until a number of centuries later when the Goths and the Visigoths and the Vandals and other folks swept down and overpowered Rome. Well, why is that important? Why is the Pax Romana important? You certainly are more able to dwell on matters like the matters of God and religion than if you were busy fighting for your life or fleeing from an invading army. And the relative uh, era rule of peace allows things like education and uh, worship and other things to prosper that would not be so in time of battle. But another thing, another physical circumstance, is the way in which something had really, you civil engineers should know this and be aware of it, that Uh, Just prior to that time and all through the time of Jesus, the Roman roads and bridges and aqueducts were being built all over the place. Now, why would that be so important? Well, simply in the way that it united various lands and nations across their borders. It would be impossible for us to imagine, absolutely impossible for us to imagine, living in a day without roads that we could just get on with our automobile and drive to Pittsburgh or drive to Baltimore or do whatever we wanted. Most people had not been and were not more than 50 miles from their homes. If that, that was a long ways away if you got 50 miles from home. And to travel that far was an arduous and dangerous thing. Bandits, no good roads, over hills, crossing rivers, no bridges. The mere civic, civil engineering that happened under Rome was a great thing that people could move out and that meant ideas could move out and trade and moving back and forth in the international arena made a path for the Christian gospel. So did something else, not, not civil engineering now, but language. Ability to talk to those people 50 miles away once you traveled to where they were. That wasn't possible much before the, the time of Jesus. People living in little pockets here and there had their own dialects. They might have spoken a common language, but their dialect within that language was so different that they couldn't speak to the folks over here a hundred miles away. Alexander the Great brought the improvement of the Greek language being widely accepted throughout many parts of the civilized world so that all of a sudden now there was a lingua franca, as they called it, a common tongue in which you could do business, in which you could talk about uh, the birth of a Savior with people who look different than you and, and native speech was different than yours. And then there was, too, a, a sense of real spiritual emptiness and crying out for God in that particular time. Part of this had to do with Old Testament prophecy being at an end. There was about a 400-year span between the last of the Old Testament prophets and the appearance of Jesus, a time of no new revelation from God. And there certainly were many who said, well, why isn't God speaking anymore? Or where are those Old Testament promises that we long for? Are they going to be fulfilled? There was a certain eagerness and hunger. And into that hunger as well, there was a deep spiritual 
vacuum that went beyond just Israel. When Paul went to Athens, you remember he interacted with philosophers who just sat in the marketplace and discussed the latest idea, the latest thing. They were the intellectuals of the hour. But alongside folks like that that had good minds and tried to use them, there were magicians and cults and erotic sexual rituals and even human sacrifices going on. A lot of bizarre things. Tremendous spiritual need. So we see an ancient world that was poised, if you could think in terms of God's timing of things providentially, the world was poised for God to intervene, for Christ to come and declare good news by salvation through trust in Him. I wonder, you know, we're, we're pretty pessimistic in 2016. And we think, well, I suppose uh, spiritually things aren't ever going to get any better than they are now. Well, people have thought that throughout history. And God has brought revival sometimes in much darker cultural times than what we have before us today. We might pray, certainly pray always, that God might in our time bring a sweeping revival that would begin in His church and impact the rest of society. But there certainly was this wonderful providential timing to the coming of Christ. But then secondly, and maybe more important, is a second point to say, Galatians 4, 4, and 5 speak about God's saving work done in this fullness of time. It was just the right time for the message of Christ and the acts of Christ to come. And they were punctual. They were just when they were needed. I've lived in Lancaster County long enough to know that this is a place where people generally respect punctuality. If That doesn't apply to every single one of you, but it applies to many of you. Uh, in this county, you know, if you say to somebody, let's meet for breakfast at 8 o'clock, it's pretty likely that person's going to come and meet you within 5 to 10 minutes of 8 o'clock. They're not going to stroll in at 8.35 or 8.45 being intentionally late in a fashionable way, as people do in some other places in the world where you never come on time. Well, I wonder if you've ever thought about God being punctual. The infinite God knows the right hour for all events to happen, and he has purpose and timing. I heard a preacher once base a sermon on what he called the pace of grace. I was enamored with his phrase, God in his grace works at a certain pace that is well-timed. Ephesians 1, 9, and 10 says, God made known to us the mystery of his will which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times had reached their fulfillment. Romans 5, 6 adds similarly, at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Look at the things that Paul breaks into phrases here, especially in, uh, mostly in verse 4 and spilling into verse 5 of the text I've read in Galatians 4. He emphasizes, first of all, that God sent forth his Son. Really, the most literal understanding of the Greek verb is he sent out of himself his Son. That tells us that Jesus existed before he appeared in Bethlehem, if we didn't already know that. Pre-existence is claimed here and in other places in the Scripture 
for Jesus Christ. You and I, you know, somebody says, well, when did, what was your beginning in the world? We tell them our birth date. And that was, well, of course, we started nine months before that, but that was the moment we appeared in the world and we were regarded fully socially as a person in this world. But Jesus Christ pre-existed. He was sent out from the Father, having been one with the Father. Now, we know this. If we've ever read the opening of John, John's gospel, you know, doesn't have a Christmas story. Matthew and Luke have those. Mark and John do not. John begins with these words. In the beginning was the Word. In other words, he's talking about the beginning, the beginning. The beginning before there was a beginning. The in the beginning God created had the heavens and the earth beginning. There was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory as of the one and only who came forth from the Father, full of grace and truth. I just need to remind you, I hope it isn't something this congregation needs a lot of reminding, but if you ever stumble on a version of Christianity or some writer who somehow wants to downplay the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, run from that thought or that book or that presentation. The pre-existence of Christ is embedded in the Scripture and proclaimed that God sent forth His Son out of Himself. But then Paul has the phrase here in verse 4, born of woman. Now that seems to just flip it right around, doesn't it? He was divine, he was before time, but yet he was real in time in the body of a woman. And curious phrase, born of woman? In a culture, ancient culture always valued who your father was, especially a man. You would go around and say, well, you know, Jesus, the son of Joseph, would be the logical thing that everybody in the world would want to say. But here he was born of woman. That, at the very least, is a curious phrase. But, of course, it echoes the very first prophecy of Christ in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, that says the seed of the woman will be in conflict with, the, with Satan and sin and will crush him, will, in the end, win the victory over him. Here, the seed of the woman tells us of the virgin birth. The word isn't there, doesn't say virgin birth, but it, it might as well because saying that curious expression is an announcement that he was virgin born of his mother's physiology, his mother's biology, and yet he became a real man, every bit of man. He could have emotions and weep. He could laugh. He ate and he drank. He did skilled work with tools in a carpenter. Think about it for a minute. What if we knew a chair or a table existed that Jesus of Nazareth made? Wow. That would be in the Vatican Museum, I suppose, behind bulletproof and tank-proof glass. So you could go and say, wow, look at that. Jesus made that chair. I thank God that no such thing exists because we would make it a foolish idol. And yet, stop and think. He did that. He helped build houses. He helped replace roofs. He did all the carmade yokes probably for oxen and so on, all the things that a carpenter would take on. He was an ordinary man for a long period of time in the eyes of his neighbors. 
But he was not only capable of making tables and sleeping and eating and being someone's friend, he became capable of suffering and dying, which was not in a capability he had before. And then verse 4-2 says, he came forth and was born under the law. Now, this relates to the whole argument Paul's been having in Galatians, especially in chapter 3, that the law led us to Christ, led us to salvation by grace. It taught us what sin was, but the law doesn't save us. Just as Abraham had to look ahead and believe by faith that God was sending a Savior, so do we. But you know, the law for people of the Old Testament and for this first century age represented something somewhat threatening. It was like carrying around an a, uh, encyclopedia of sin all the time. And the law would tell you what sin was and when exactly you were sinning. And this was onerous to people. This was burdensome. And people would say, oh, the law, how can I ever expect to keep it? It's so difficult. It, in little details, it tells me how I've sinned. But when Jesus was born under the law, it wasn't a burden. Do you realize he had a different relationship to God's law? God's law was a delight. He was able to do it perfectly. I know that we had our piano tuner in the church this week. I saw him in a back wing when I was walking through the building tuning a piano. And I don't know too much about tuning pianos, but I think they use a tuning fork and strike the note and then try to get that note to resonate with particular strings on the piano. Well, think of the law of God as being all those strings and Jesus as the tuning fork. He was in perfect resonating condition with the law of God. His was a piano that never needed to be tuned because he could with delight do what God asked him to do. And so the result comes in verse 5 that he was born to redeem those under the law to receive the adoption as sons. There's a phrase used in the early church. It's not a biblical phrase, but it's a very good theological phrase that says Christ became what we are so that we might become what he is. Now, you've got to be a little careful there. We don't become the Son of God as Jesus was born or divine from the beginning without being born. We were born under sin, under law, and Jesus made it possible for us to become declared righteous as he stood as our substitute. You know, it's an interesting thing when we, when we think about timelines and, and Christmas and the incarnation. There's no question if we took a poll, what's your favorite holiday in the year? Christmas would win, hands down, at least in America, I'm sure it would. Uh, even many people perhaps who are not themselves professing Christians might say, oh, I love Christmas. I love Christmas. I love everything about it. I love the colors. I love the songs. I love the, the meals and the enjoyment of family and all of that. Well, I just caution you to be careful because important and wonderful as Christmas is as a marking of the incarnation of God's Son into human flesh, it is an incomplete holiday. And the one that is absolutely required to complete Christmas, of course, is Easter. Where are we without Good Friday, without the cross? Where are we without the open tomb? There is certainly 
no way in which the sentimentalism of mother and child, the, the loveliness, you know, we, we put the baby's picture in the paper who's going to play baby Jesus. When one of our twins did that years ago, he screamed the whole time. Uh, he doesn't want to hear about that at this point in his life. But, uh, you know, we think, oh, a mother and a baby. Oh, isn't that just so warm and wonderful? But a mother and a baby or a cradle is not the enduring symbol of Christianity. A cross is an instrument of execution. We're not a, a, a soft little pink or brown-skinned baby was being cuddled by his mother. But rather, that same baby had grown by 30 years and now was a naked man, nailed up on an executioner's tree, dying in groans of agony and blood dripping on the ground. That is what he came for. That is what Christmas introduces. And without it, we have no fulfilled holy day at all. Now, quickly, an application here. God, we learn, is doing things according to his schedule in a timely way. And we can say this is true also as he rules over the time of each and every believer's life. Psalm 31 says it. David wrote, you are my God. My times are in your hand. God knows the date of your birth. You don't want to think about it, but he also knows the date of your death. Pardon me for introducing something solemn, but someone in this room that I'm speaking to today, probably more than one someone's, will not see another Christmas. Maybe you have an idea who that could be because you know someone is seriously ill. But let me tell you, as you sit there and think, oh, I'm thankful it's not me, think again and again. And think of the fact that the days of every one of our lives are numbered. They're a precious gift. None of us knows what happened tomorrow, let alone another Christmas. We had a beloved man in our congregation here a year or two ago who, uh, right around New Year's, choked on some food and went into the presence of Christ right after all the joy of Christmas. Did he ever expect that? Did his wife expect that? Of course not. And you say, oh, what a horrible tragedy, but... Actually, it wasn't, because Al went to be with Jesus. And he lives and dwells there as a glorified soul with God. But every one of us needs to respect the fact that God rules today over the times of our lives. God is unfolding his truth, his progressive revelation, just as he did from Old Testament to New. He's unfolding it in your life. He's unfolding it in our time, in common events, in a new presidency and all the things that face our nation. We need to be respectful for the fact that Ecclesiastes 3 tells us he has made everything beautiful in its time and he has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God is doing from the beginning to the end. I think that one of, one of the areas where this applies to the most is the area of prayer, believe it or not. When people come to me and say, I'd like to talk to you about unanswered prayer, I usually know that we could turn the subject to the whole area of our timing and our expectation for things we are praying for. You know, 
the typical way, perhaps, that someone has a request, whatever, Lord, let me get this job I'm interviewing for, and let me find out on Thursday. Okay, so we've got a request, but we've also got a schedule demand. And then when you don't get an answer on Thursday, or maybe even for a week or two more Thursdays, you say, oh, God doesn't answer prayer, because I told him I needed the answer on Thursday. Well, who are you to tell God? Who are you to give God the schedule? Let me tell you, one of the great lessons we need to learn over and over and over again is what the Bible calls waiting on the Lord. You say, well, I don't like to wait. I want things when I want them. Well, of course you do. But wouldn't it be better to trust someone who knows the timeline of your life and what he's doing and trusting that he is not going to be too late or too early that his timing will always be right. You know, it's possible, as I close today, that someone here has lived up until this moment, at whatever age you are, without ever entrusting your life and your destiny to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And it's possible, just possible, maybe not probable, but possible, that you are the person I was talking about a few moments ago who will not see another Christmas. Maybe you will not see another Fourth of July, another Easter, another New Year's Day. None of us knows this. Let me suggest to you that this, these closing weeks of 2016 could be the time of your life that God is calling you to bow low in faith before Jesus. The Scripture says, Now is the day of salvation. We're speaking of Jesus who came to earth the first time, and he came neither too early nor too late. He came at exactly the right hour in history. And the Bible promises that he's coming gloriously once more at a time known only to the Father. I pray today that you will be ready to greet him with overflowing joy because you already have met him now in the fabric of your living life and you've met him on God's appointed day of mercy to save you and guarantee eternal life to you. May it be so. Father, we thank you that while we are never getting our schedules just right, we're always wanting things sooner, we're always missing your signals, we're always too eager jumping the gun. And so we complain about you and we complain about prayer. But we thank you that you brought Jesus at just the right time. I thank you that he has come into many lives here at just the right time in those lives. I pray that the time might be right for him to come to someone who needs him today to reveal his glorious self and his plan and purpose for that life. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.